Magnavox presents Odyssey, the electronic game of the future. Odyssey easily attaches to any brand TV, black and white or color, to create a closed circuit electronic playground. Odyssey gives you all the exciting action of hockey and 11 other challenging play and learning games for the entire family. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. Yeah, that's right. We're talking episode 59. Episode 5-9. That's one episode before the big 6-0. Oh yeah. Are we doing anything exciting? Let me check our notes. Mm, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we do anything exciting. We're existing. That's true. Existing is pretty exciting. I, as they always say, it's better than the alternative. Anyway, Zach, what have you been uh, recently been playing? Well, Seth, recently I've been playing a little game called Watch Dogs 2. I don't know if I would describe that game as little. No, actually, it's a rather big game. Uh, So Watch Dogs 2 was uh, a 2016 game developed by Ubisoft Montreal. It is the sequel to Watch Dogs 1. Oh, really? Yes, which I have never played. (laughs) Oh, I played Watch Dogs 1 and only played a little bit of Watch Dogs 2. Well, I played none of Watch Dogs 1 and I played a lot of Watch Dogs 2. I got Watch Dogs 2 for free from our favorite people at Epic Games. Watch Dogs 2 is a lot like GTA, but you hack into things like cameras. It was a very fun game. I like the fact that you can hack into cars. That was very fun. Like, I like being driving down the street, and then we hack into a car, and it verves off the side of the road and goes flying away. I also like that you can see people's profiles of their, like, existence. So you'll, like, hover over someone and right-click on them, and it'll be like, this is Johnny Smith, and he really likes plotting insurrections. <laughs> or this is, like, Deborah Louise, and she really likes cats. They, they could have multiple things where they like cats and and plotting insurrections. So yeah, sometimes it'll be like this person does not have a job but has four hundred thousand dollars in their bank account for some reason. <laughs> also, really likes meth. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's a bit. It was a good time. I really liked the story. I I also was a big fan of the hacking, and I liked the dogs that are in the game. There are dogs in Watch Dogs. Uh, yep. You have to watch out for them. <laughs> you do. No, but you can pet them, which is very fun. Oh, I, didn't, yeah. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, if you walk up to a dog that's like walking down the street, it'll prompt you to pet it and your guy will like kneel down and give it a little pat, pat, pat. It's, I didn't play a lot of Watch Dogs 2. I did play a, an okay amount of Watch Dogs 1. Watch Dogs, fun fact, was the game that got me to stop trusting trailers. Yeah, uh, Watch Dogs 1 had a very, uh, really bad launch. Oh yeah, very bad launch. I still bought the second second one though which is surprising since i played the first one i was very unhappy with my initial purchase i think overall i think watchdogs and watchdogs 2 are good games like in the sense that they are a game and that they are fun to play yeah i don't know if they necessarily tie back to their marketing promise 
either game, which I always feel like dings a game a little bit for me personally when a company is like, this is the game that we are going to give you in six months and it's amazing. And you're like, yeah, I like all of those things in the trailer. And then it comes out and you're like, none of those things in the trailer are here anymore. What happened? And they're like, oh, yeah, we lied. <laughs> it's just like, Oops. oh, okay. But I pre-ordered the game based on the lie that you gave me. And they're like, yeah, we know. Oh, we And that's know. it. And that's where it ends. And some some companies take ownership about that. Some companies release after release day patches to fix it. And some companies don't care. Ubisoft is decidedly in the don't care category, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, they, they really, they really, they really don't care. So, uh, Seth, what have you been playing? So I went through and played a game that was recently in my Byway Pass and was a, a free game called Summerland. And it was uh, developed by a little company called Fire Games. Uh, F-Y-R-E, who is a very, very small development house that released the entirety of this game, Summerland, uh, for free so that people can enjoy the founder of Fire Games' uh, pet project that uh, he was working on, this guy by the name of Connor. In the game, you play as uh, Detective Matthew, and you have to go through these trials, which are flashbacks to your life where you play through the game but it's a single story it's not like you have there are choices presented in the game but they are not choices that will change the ending and that's okay that they they it doesn't really change the ending the story is the story is really nice and really fun and it just kind of breaks through this this cop who's going through a hard time and how his life kind of spiraled out of control it's a good uh playthrough i beat it in two and a half hours so it's not a horribly long time commitment and uh it's free so i i definitely recommend if you're interested in a story uh like walking simulator type game where you it's gonna be very heavy story try summerland it's free it's also it comes off a little bit like um stanley parable in regards to like having like a, a narrator talking during it so if you like that aspect it's a lot of fun very cool i'll have to take a i'll have to uh give that game a shot good good just like you said the last time yes so the shot's probably 50 percent real the shot might have been fired by the time this episode's out it's true or may still be or may still, still be in sitting chamber. in the chamber yeah <laughs> So this particular episode, we're talking about a, a really cool game console. Yeah. Arguably, you could say that without this game console, the two games that we just described would not exist. Um, arguably, you could also say that um, without this game console, people... I, I don't have anything funny. I was going to say something witty, but it, it's just not here today. No, you don't got the wit. I don't, I don't have the wit. Though, this game console has is on a list of game consoles that we want to talk about because they are very bad selling game consoles. It's our favorite list. It's our our favorite type of list. We love horribly performing products. In these in this uh top list of game consoles were the Philips CDI, which we talked about, the Sega Saturn, which we talked about, and the Sega Dreamcast, which we talked about, and the Virtual Boy, all of which these those four con- game consoles we talked about and they all performed horribly at the market. They did. They they did so now we'll talk about another game console and as per the episode title it is called the magnavox odyssey that's right the magnavox odyssey which is the first ever home video game console ever and if you haven't heard about the magnavox odyssey before don't worry not many people had and to be honest that's probably one of the reasons why 
It didn't sell so well. That's right. And that's why we're here to tell you all about it. Though, if you ask Seth in the past, perhaps even as in the past as of a year ago, Seth, do you know about the Magnavox Odyssey? He would have said, is that a TV? Because that's what I knew Magnavox for, was making televisions. <laughs> that's what they did. So to get into the Magnavox Odyssey, um, I think the best step would be to get into talking about Ralph Baer. Uh, Ralph Baer uh, was born in Pimisens Palatinate in the Weimar Republic Germany in 1922. Uh, he was born to a Jewish family, and Bear lived in Germany with his family up until 1938. Now, his family being Jewish feared persecution from the growing Nazi government, so they moved to New York City. In the United States, Bear originally started working in a factory, and after seeing an advertisement one day while he was on his way to work for electronics education, he decided to leave his job and begin studying that growing industry of electronics, because it was the 1940s and electronics were kind of a whole new whole new mess of worms right so in 1940 he graduated from the national radio institute as a radio service technician and in 1943 he was drafted to fight in world war ii and was assigned to military intelligence in london thanks to the gi bill bear was able to complete his secondary education and got a bachelor of science in television engineering in 1949 such a sweet degree i want i don't think they even give out television engineering that was like a brand new degree at the time too because because television wasn't even that new. So kind of want to be a television engineer. Yeah. So he was probably one of the very few bachelor of sciences in television engineering in that time period. Following getting his bachelor's of science in the amazing field of television engineering in about 1956, uh, Bear started his own company, which was later acquired by uh, the defense contractor Sanders Associates, which was based in Nashua, New Hampshire. He stayed working with Sanders Associates until he retired in 1987 which is a great year. While working at Sanders, he came up with the idea that would eventually spawn all of the world's, the home video game console market. So while he was working at Sanders, Bear began drafting up an idea for a game box. His idea was for a device that would transmit a signal to a television set. From there, people would be able to interact with the game while it's being transmitted. This was very unique for the time as electronic games did exist, but they were primarily located at large academic or research institutions, like Space War, which was played on these massive machines, which maybe we'll do an episode about Space War. Yeah. Well, it was a thing. <laughs> there's our episode. And by the year 1966, uh, there were no commercial video games or even a video game market. So Bear thought about bringing those unique video games that existed at these research institutions and academic colleges and all of that to the home and take it and be able to sell something to millions of people. Yeah. So their first prototype that Bear worked on was called TV Game Number One, which has a... That's, that's a great name. Yeah, that's a really catchy name. It's like if we named our podcast, Podcast with Brothers Number One. The TV Game Number One was able to display a vertical line that could be moved up and down. Pretty cool. Uh, Bear and one of his technicians showed the prototype off to Herbert Campman, who was the director of research at Sanders. And Campman agreed to fund the project for $2,000 for the labor and $500 for the parts. Bear spent the next few months working on further prototypes. Bear had assistance from a technician named Bill Harrison, who was also busy with other projects at Sanders because he had a full-time job there and had other things to do. So he would primarily work with Bear between those projects. 
So Bear would be working on his project and Harrison would just like come in and be like, all right, I have time. Another engineer, also named Bill, Bill um, Rusk, helped brainstorm ideas with Bear. In early May of 1967, Bill Harrison had began developing some games such as two-player games where players must repeatedly press a button to fill an empty bucket of water and another game that was designed for a light gun shooter. They showed this off to Herbert Campman, and he really liked the light gun game. So he was like, hey, have for some more money. Hey, I like shooting things, yeah. especially in my home. <laughs> in, August of, uh, in August of 1967, Bear and Harrison were focused on making sure that the machine could use fewer components. This was mostly so it could be affordable. Bear wanted the console to sell for $25, which in today's money was about is about $194.78. I looked it up on a calculator. Wow. Uh, They also, at that time, had officially added Bill Rusk to their team and began developing a fourth prototype that could play a ping pong game, a chasing game, and a light gun game. They also began prototyping controllers, such as the, the rifle for the light gun game and a dial controller for the ping pong game. It was also around this time that they were told to start looking for potential manufacturers because Sanders was not a business that made and sold commercial electronics. So while Bear was working on this project, Sanders was like, cool, you can work on it, but we don't sell things. <laughs> We're a government contractor. So they decided that their best path forward in getting this product made was going to a cable television industry or like a company that made TVs. Uh, in 1969, They created their seventh prototype, which was now called the Brown Box, which is mostly due to the wood grain stickers that were on the case. So they were working on a uh, contract with RCA, the electronics producer who also, but they really just couldn't get a deal worked out with them. So when the, the deal with RCA fell through, an executive who they were working with, Bill Enders, was with RCA. He left and he went to go work at Magnavox. And when Enders arrived at Magnavox, he was still very interested in this brown box and brought it up to his superiors at Magnavox to take a look at the project. However, uh, Magnavox executives weren't 100% sold on it initially and weren't really impressed with the results of the prototype. They did, though, after a long period of contract negotiation, they finally formally agreed to distribute the device starting January of 1971. They started looking for people in 1969, so that 1971, so that's almost two years of of contracts and stuff like that. So yeah, that's a fairly decent length cycle. <laughs> which which I think part of it is that it was a, a new and emerging technology and not something that people were initially going to be 100% behind also because no one else was doing it so there was no rush to get it out right but also for these manufacturing companies you're essentially saying hey i've got this thing that nobody's buying but we think people will buy but you need to tie up thousands and millions of your dollars in making it for us in order to sell it commercially because you can't just sell one yeah right 
which is all they had. And man, was this a thing. So we, we pulled in some uh, photographs of what the Magnavox looked like in 1979. And it looks like a little spaceship. It does. It, like, I love that's it. What I like <laughs> when I look it looks like a little it, UFO. <laughs> it looks like a little boxy UFO. The wood paneling is gone and it's uh, white. And it has these two little controllers that come out that just look like little smaller Magnavoxes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, well, smaller Odysseys, right? because it, it eventually will be the Magnavox Odyssey, but this is also the brown box, as it were. So it's got these two little square controllers that don't look very comfortable or ergonomic, and they have little dials on them, and then they tie back to the device that just has, like, just like a, like a, was that a slot in the middle where the power button is? Maybe? Yeah, so, well, there is no power button on the device, um, and we'll and I'll and I'll get to that in a in a bit when we talk about how the the machine was designed and how it works. But yeah, so I mean, it's this kind of very sleek look for a video game system. I mean, obviously, this is the very first video game system, so there wasn't a lot of comparison to do. But it's uh, from what I've seen of consumer electronics of the 1970s, it really stands out. I mean, this doesn't look like your your usual type of set box you know, piece of equipment, you know, back in the seventies, a lot of things had wood grain and this does not have any wood grain. It's this like white cut, like little spaceship. It's got this black top to it, has this brown base. That's a, like a brown plastic. And then these, these two brick kind of size controllers that Seth was describing that have actually three dials on them. Uh, there's two dials on one side that one dial is on top of the other dial. So there's like a small dial on top of a larger dial and then on the other side of that part of the controller, there's another dial. So there's three dials total and then a button on the top. And the button was actually labeled reset. And the reason these controllers might look really awkward to hold is because they're not designed to be held. The controllers were designed to be mounted on a flat surface and not in someone's hand like you might hold a modern controller. So the idea was you put this thing down on a coffee table, you kneel down or you sit at your coffee table and you, you put your hands around this controller. You're not holding the controller like you would a, maybe a joystick. You know what's, um this reminds me a lot of is like those things that they would show at like the House of Tomorrow yeah. during the World's Fair. And they have like the, welcome to the world, of the, the you know the house of tomorrow, and this is what the people of the future will be doing. It looks like something from that that commercial. There could be a Magnavox Odyssey in it, and it wouldn't look weird. It would just look like future tech that the seventies thought we were going to have. Yeah, exactly. So to get into the more technical side of the Odyssey, the console itself connects to the TV via a switch box, and you had to tune into channel three or four to get it to work. People who grew up with older video game systems probably remember that. That was the common way to play video games back pretty much up until the development of digital input and stuff like that um, and RCA input. So the system was powered by either six C batteries or an optional power supply that was sold separately. Again, this thing was designed to be played on a coffee table. So you weren't really plugging it into the wall and putting it on top of your set box because the, the controllers themselves were so short in terms of length of the wire you had to have it right in front of you when you played it. And the machine also lacked any sound. So it connected to the TV and it would be a silent game. It also lacked color. Um, they did think about possibly experimenting with color, but it was determined to be a little too expensive. And also color TVs were a luxury in the 70s. Not everyone had a color TV, so it would kind of been pointless. You weren't selling it to a large market at the time if you were marketing a color product. Do you think they, Do you think it came with 6C batteries? Or do you think it's like the Virtual Boy where, they, where you have to then again... Probably like the Virtual Boy. 
there, boy. Like, get a Magnavox Odyssey mail and rebate for batteries. Six C, C batteries are the big guys. They though, are. They're, they're they? the really chunky batteries. Required six of them? Six C Jeez. batteries, yeah. It's all yeah. It's ridiculous. Probably didn't last that long either. <laughs> I think, that thing is probably mostly a battery house. Like. <laughs> I think all the weight was in battery. Internally, the Odyssey circuitry uses a diode transistor logic board, meaning the entire logic of the system is done via a series of diodes and transistors. The system lacked a CPU entirely. In fact, the first commercially sold microprocessor cpu was only made available later that year so even if they wanted a cpu in there they couldn't put one in because microprocessors didn't didn't even exist exist. yeah and even if they did exist it wasn't going to be something that they could probably just throw in there at the last minute the games themselves did not come on cartridges rather you had these cards that you would insert into the system and all that those cards did was simply modify the internal circuitry to tell the system what game to play effectively it worked like a series of switches so you you popped in the card it made a clunk sound because you're literally shoving it into the circuit board and the game would start. In fact, that's how you turned on the system. So you plugged the system mm. into the wall and then you shoved the cartridge into it and then it would turn on because you were completing the circuit. Well, the card, yeah. not the cartridge. The card. In fact, some games would actually use the same cards as other games. There would just be a different set of rules. So maybe one game used card two and then another game used card two and there's just a different set of rules on how you played with card two. To think about the Odyssey a little bit, it's very important to realize this was a very simple, simple device. The Odyssey was sold with a series of overlays for the games it also was sold with dice poker chips score sheets play money deck of cards this thing was pretty much an elaborate board game (laughs) it was like an accessory to the board game for example one of the games on the odyssey is roulette the way you play roulette is you put an overlay on the screen of the roulette wheel and then you spin the dial while your eyes are closed and then you open your eye and you look to see where the roulette landed and that's how you play roulette it would probably have been cheaper to just buy a small roulette wheel if you really wanted to play roulette at home but but Would you be able to also play poker? Exactly. So this was the all-in-one device. The light gun, which was also sold separately, kind of looks like a 12-gauge shotgun. And I don't mean like with an orange tip. I mean, this thing looks like if you cut off the wire that was intended to connect to the machine, you probably could have robbed a convenience store at the time with it. Overall, the Odyssey was a very simple device, but it was still the very first ever video game console. And it really was unique in that way one of my um favorite things to do while preparing for the podcast is to when we pick up ideas especially vintage uh hardware or vintage video games i love to find the old commercials that ran during that time so i found an old um magnavox odyssey commercial well i think zach yeah i found it (laughs) you liar yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i did i gave you credit uh zach found this uh commercial and it is it's a brief maybe minute and a half commercial where they talk about the magnavox odyssey and uh through the commercial they show the the magnavox being played on the television set and it has a a a mother and a uh, child sitting down playing it and they put the overlays over the tv and then these like white lights show up on the tv yeah. and it almost looks like maybe the tv's having some issues but apparently you can control the lights <laughs> and that's the magnavox odyssey and it gives you different slides that you can play through and what's funny is it's it it comes off as like this uh family friendly uh machine 
where you can play tennis, you can play geography, you can pick out like states, go to, you know, like you put up a map of the US and you can light up the states so you can quiz your kid on capitals. There's like tennis. I think there's a football game, which I'm saying there's these football games and tennis games. Really, There's an overlay that looks like a tennis field and an overlay that looks like a football field. And you have to move the lights around against some other light, like another light going around. And then there's like roulette, like and poker like so like there's there were I, I feel like it was catered to a little bit beyond maybe a family night but also like an adult night yeah like when you have your uh, adult friends come over and you make them jello and then play on the magnavox <laughs> you, make odyssey. A, you make them a jello salad a jello salad yeah and you guys just drink your scotch and play the magnavox odyssey <laughs> yeah with your 12 gauge shotgun looking controller yeah that sounds like a fun night i'd be down i'd be down to do that like tomorrow so when the system was finally released it was released in 1972 and it was not sold for the 25 dollars that ralph originally wanted to sell it for but it sold for 99 dollars, which is equivalent to 616 dollars in today's money it's debated how many systems were actually produced by magnavox somewhere around 120 to 140 thousand of that in 1972 magnavox sold 69 thousand that year which is not good if you sell your half of your initial yeah, stock yeah that's not that's not ideal it's very bad ralph bear believed that the poor sales were due to the high price he wanted to sell for 25 dollars magnavox wanted to sell for a hundred so they sold it for a hundred nobody bought it it's reported that magnavox restricted their sales to magnavox dealers so in order to buy a magnavox odyssey you had to you couldn't just get it at any store you had to go to a store that was licensed to sell magnavox products which could be like a Sears and Robux, but it might not be a a Walmart or a, a Woolworths. And back in the 70s, there were Magnavox stores. So there would be a store that you would go to that was the Magnavox store. And that's where you bought your Magnavox TV. And if your Magnavox TV broke, you brought it there to get Magnavox fixed. But <laughs> Magnavox fixed. But you, you wouldn't buy a Magnavox TV from the RCA store or even probably the Sears because right. Sears was a competitor to Magnavox with a lot of things at the time. Right. No, agreed. So that you had to go to a specific person to get this Magnavox Odyssey, which I believe the commercial alluded to. Yeah. That you had to go to a Magnavox, find your local Magnavox dealer to get he's in the yellow pages yeah look up your magnavox dealer in the yellow pages and call them up and ask if you can get a magnavox odyssey i guarantee you they're in stock though because nobody bought them there's also because the concept of a video game system was new consumers were not familiar with how the technology worked like consumers aren't dumb consumers can't understand new technology but it has to be marketed to them correctly so if you put out a product that's very heavily magnavox themed And at the end, you have to go to a Magnavox dealer and uses some sort of technology using diodes and transistors. A normal consumer might think that you have to have a Magnavox TV to use it. In which that case, if they had not a Magnavox TV and they had an RCA TV, they're not going to buy a Magnavox Odyssey. When they might have been the right person to buy it for it, they just might have been like, well, I'm not buying a whole new television set to play this. Because imagine if the Magnavox Odyssey is $99 and your new television set is another $99, do you really want to spend $1,200 on something that may be just like a novelty? No, probably not. I wouldn't spend $1,200 for a novelty product, but maybe $600. <laughs> That's a different story. <laughs> 
<laughs> or 200 bucks. I definitely spend $200 on a novelty video game console. Now, there is some debate that, that where, even though the numbers appear to be low, Don Emery, who was an assistant product planner at Magnavox, believed that the sales were in line with their own internal projections. Though at the end of the holiday season of 1972, Magnavox strongly considered discontinuing the product, which would have been the after only one year of sales. So Don was probably blowing smoke and mirrors <laughs> if he's saying that they were part of their internal projections or Magnavox knew it was going to fail as someone who has done financial forecasts for companies internally uh there are times where you know that something's not going to sell and you continue to move forward with it because of other commitments Ralph Bear offered some ideas to improve the system, such as a sound add-on or a golf-based controller, but ultimately all those ideas were rejected. In 1973, the system was marketed nationally, though still only available in Magnavox dealerships. The system price in 1973 was lowered to $50 if you purchased a Magnavox TV, so it was bundled with televisions. The system was also released in 12 other countries. In late 1973, Magnavox manufactured an additional 27,000 units due to demand and reportedly sold, of those additional units, 20,000 of these units. In 1974, Odyssey was added to the Sears Wish Book Catalog. Although being added to the Sears Wish Book Catalog would have been a high point for the Magnavox Odyssey, it was discontinued in 1974. According to Ralph Baer, the device sold... 350,000 units worldwide in two years, which is not a great number of units being sold. No, I mean, it's better than zero, but it's certainly not better than other video game systems in their first two years. Let's put this in perspective. The system was released in 1972, and from 1972 to 1974, the Magnavox Odyssey sold 350,000 units, which is in two years from 1995 to 1996... The Virtual Boy sold 770,000 units, and that was also a commercial failure. And while the Odyssey didn't make a huge splash, it did kind of do exactly what its name implied it could do. And by that I mean it embarked on an Odyssey that would become the beginning of the video game industry. Isn't that poetic? It is. It is very poetic. Personally, I think the Magnavox Odyssey was perhaps too new and too old for its time. It was very much the future, but also decidedly in the past. I feel like it would have done amazing if it came out like 1955, 1960, or like when they originally were doing the brown box originally, if they didn't spend so long getting someone to make it for them and they released it towards the end of the 60s instead of the 70s. I think there could have been a market there. And this thing could have been a great party game thing, a party system. There were actually a few clone consoles that were made to mimic the, the Odyssey. And it still remains the only home video game console capable of playing different games until 1976 with the release of the Fairchild Semiconductor Channel F system, which has a very long name, but maybe it will be a future episode for the classic gaming brothers. The Odyssey brand didn't die with this first system. In 1978, the much more advanced Magnavox Odyssey 2 was released. The Odyssey 2 differentiated in plenty of ways, but the most notable was that it used interchangeable ROM cartridges similar to other video game systems of that time, like the Atari 2600. Between 1975 and 1977, there were also the Odyssey series of Pong machines. These were machines that were dedicated to play Pong. That's it. Or Pong variants. 
like Pong, but with more paddles. Pong with more paddles. Due to the work that Ralph Baer did on the original Magnavox Odyssey, he became known as the father of video games, and I think that's a very fitting title for him. He was also awarded the National Medal of Technology from President George W. Bush. The brown box and TV game number one are currently in the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History. So I've actually seen the the original TV game number one in the brown box. Um, I was at the National Museum of American History, and they have a whole section dedicated to technology and they have one of the original pong machines the original apple one and they also have the brown box and a couple other um stuff i've also seen um a brown box replica which was pretty cool that's just a fun fact the so the odyssey today you can probably find it on ebay it is um a fairly expensive system usually it comes complete so if you are going to grab an odyssey you'll probably grab i i haven't really ever seen them sell like just the just the odyssey like system no cable sort of thing it's usually always complete which is nice um you can probably grab one for about 400 dollars or so i'm literally looking at ebay right now there's a listing for a 400 um excluding shipping uh odyssey in the original box with all the overlays all of the like poker chips wow the cards yeah wow so that person is in fact if they bought it new in 1974 i think they did because it actually has i'm just looking at the pictures of this they have an inspection card from when they probably brought it to get serviced at a magnavox dealership uh yeah oh, good. so it has been officially inspected so if it's been officially inspected and they bought it in 1973 1974 they are in fact losing 200 <laughs> yeah they are they're selling it at a loss they no longer want this piece of american history in their house because yeah. 400 is in fact cheaper than what the regular the, the original retail was probably smells like cigarettes <laughs> probably smells like cigarettes <laughs> the 70s all in one box <laughs> so that is the odyssey a kind of a unique piece of video gaming history that uh i think is very important to video gaming history but also was not so important that it made any big waves compared to like the atari which we talked about which did very very well um the odyssey did not do very very well and that's why it's also right. on the list of worst selling game systems <laughs> So that's the Magnavox Odyssey, the very first video home video game console, and nobody really, nobody really bought one. Yeah, that's it. That's you know, sometimes people get good ideas the wrong and time. Other times people get <laughs> oh yeah, sometimes they get good ideas at the wrong time. Other times they have mediocre ideas that start something new. So uh, going from the Magnavox Odyssey, we're now going to go into our buy weight pass segment where we talk about things that we want to buy weight or pass on, uh, specifically video games. We're not just going to talk about how I want to buy weight or pass on like a new car. <laughs> oh, we should we should do something like that one day. Buy weight or pass on a new pair of jeans. <laughs> am i gonna buy wait or pass on this new pair all right anyway that just so seth what do you want to buy wait or pass on Ooh, me first i i haven't gone first in a long time i actually don't know (laughs) i don't either (laughs) so the game that i'm excited about by waiting or passing on is a game called open roads it's developed by fulbright which is the same company that developed gone home and tacoma which are two games that I actually really enjoy, which is why I'd be interested in Open Roads. Uh, So Open Roads is um, about uh, long-lost family secrets, hints of a hidden fortune, and miles to go before they sleep. It's it's all about this girl, Tess Devins, and her relationship with her mother, and how it was never really easy, but yet they set out together to go on a journey into the past, that they'll never forget at least so that's pretty much the bio of the game 
And so it looks like a Fulbright game, which meaning it's heavy on the story, heavy on the atmospheric, though it's got like cell shaded graphics, which is unique because a lot of the Fulbright games that I've played have been um, very realistic graphics like Gone Home and uh, Tacoma have very they have 3d graphics but they're a realistic art style uh where in open roads it's a very uh cell shaded cartoony type graphics which i think could also work for them so i'm actually really kind of excited to see this new medium for fulbright beyond the story which i'm sure is going to be good i also really like so gone home is very open worldish and there's no real direction as it were you're just kind of like wandering through this house and kind of uncovering the story by yourself gone home is a lot of fun tacoma though has a story that you are trying to uncover and i think tacoma i think i honestly like tacoma better than i like gone home i would recommend playing tacoma if you like gone home it's very similar except it's on a spaceship and there's also a, a like an underlying plot that you're attempting to solve. Open Roads looks like there's also going to be a story laid into it, which I, I think I like because I, I think I'll like more than Gone Home because um, I'm, I'm a really big fan of Fulbright storytelling. So versus just having like an open world to explore. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to put this down as a buy. Cool. Uh, it's due out sometime in 2021. My buy weight pass is Back for Blood. Back for Blood is the spiritual successor to Left for Dead. One of my very favorite video games. Back for Blood is due out on June 22nd, 2021. It appears to be very similar to Left 4 Dead, a cooperative first-person shooter game where you kill zombies, which is always very fun. Um, It's never a cooperative first-person game where you hang out with zombies and teach them how to be friends. You always gotta shoot them. I think I know the game I want to make. Anyway, it is being developed by Turtle Rock, um, who were the people who had originally created Left 4 Dead. As you can tell, I'm really excited for it. I really love Left 4 Dead. It is probably, Left 4 Dead 2 is probably one of my all-time favorite cooperative games to play with people, mostly because of the modding scene, which is ridiculously silly, but also just because it's just a very good, fun game to play. Um, very simple game to play in the sense that you are just running and gutting so i i'm i'm very excited for back for blood and knowing the left for dead community i'm sure that we're going to see some great mods coming out for back for blood like really soon after it gets released so um i really hope it runs on my computer because i'm definitely probably going to snag it so i'm going to put it down as a buy um, again, very excited for it. All right. So uh, I'm going to go through. Zach's going to take a nap while I tell you all the wonderful things that you guys like to hear at the end of the show. And that's how to contact us, listen to us, and support us. So in order to contact us, you can send us an email at classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. You can also send it to Seth at Classic Gaming Brothers. You can send it to Zach at Classic Gaming Brothers. You can send it to Classic Gaming Brothers at Classic Gaming Brothers. You can send it to info at Classic Gaming Brothers. That's it. Uh, there's probably other iterations that we own, but they all go to the same email box. I'll read the email. I'll respond and tell Zach what you said. Um, we use this to collect feedback um, about our episodes so that we can bring you better episodes. In fact, many episodes that we done in the past have been because somebody sent us an email which is great and then you in response to your email you get entered into our drawing where not only do you win a free video game which i mean for a video game podcast is pretty on brand but you also win the chance of getting our announcer josh on your home answering machine and if you don't know what we're talking about of our announcer, Josh, go back and listen to our holiday episode because it was a great time and we talk about Christmas. 
Or you could save it till next year and listen to it then. We don't care. <laughs> Zach, Zach would be laughing, but he's sleeping on his desk right now. That was obnoxious. Um, so to uh, listen to us, you can listen to us the same way that you're listening to us right now on whatever application this is on. You can also, if you need another application, you can listen to us on our website, which is classicgamingbrothers.com. You can also listen to us on a different pod app, such as iTunes, Amazon, Stitcher, Google, iHeartRadio, so on and so forth. Uh, there's a bunch of them. We're on them. If we're not on them, you can always reach out to us and say, hey, why aren't you on this? But we probably are. So go ahead and just search around. Just search Classic Gaming Brothers and we'll be there. And all the episodes as well. Speaking of our website, you can also contact us by going to the contact form on our website. Also, uh, you can support us. See how I'm getting there. Now you can support us by going to our Facebook page, which is Classic Gaming Brothers, giving us a like. You can also go to our Instagram, Classic Gaming Brothers, and giving us a like there. And you can go to our Twitch, which is twitch.tv slash Classic Gaming Brothers, and give us a follow there. And you can follow and like all of our content, which... Trust us, it's not a lot, but it's okay. We we are very bad. What is it? If there's something that we need to do, we don't do it. Is that that that's our slogan? Yeah, that just sounds like what we tell ourselves, like in general. Yeah, essentially, there's one thing that we do, and that's releasing a podcast every Sunday. Everything else is extra, and we don't do that extra a lot. So feel free to follow us if you don't want a million notifications. You can also support us by giving us a review or rating on whatever podcast app that you're listening us on. Reviews and ratings do well for us, or so they tell us, or so we hear. And or you can also tell three friends. Now, we always say tell three, three friends because if you like something, you tell three people generally. If you don't like something, you tell much more. So that's pretty much what I've got in regards to contacting us, listening to us and supporting us. Uh, Zach, is there anything that I'm missing? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Zach. And I've been Seth. We've been the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. That's right. You can't find me in the Yellow Pages. Now, like yeah, the Magnavox dealership. We should take out... How much, I think the Yellow Pages would be probably pretty cheap for us to... Be we could probably get in the Yellow Pages. We could probably get in the... Classic Gaming Brothers.